First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia. When we turn now to 1 Peter, we come to one of the two only recorded, preserved letters that were written by the great apostle that many of us uh, are so familiar with. Most people, even if they don't know much about the Christian faith, or even if they aren't Christians, most people have at least heard uh, of the apostle Peter, and they know who he is. He is commonly thought of as the chief of the apostles, you know, the one who is the first. When Jesus began his public ministry, uh, Peter was the first one that was called, him and his brother Andrew. They were the first of the twelve. Peter is always listed first when the apostles are named or, or they're, they're spoken of in the apostle. Peter's name is always on the top of that list. Peter is spoken of more than any of the other apostles that walked with Jesus. We have more recorded um, interaction between Peter and Jesus than between Jesus and any of the other disciples that were there. Peter was also the most outspoken, uh, the most um, forward with, with his words and with his actions, um, the most impulsive in, in many ways. And certainly Peter is the most well-known uh, in, in terms of what we can discern of his life based upon what's recorded in Scripture. And really the, the great value, or at least one of the great values of Peter and his testimony in the New Testament is that of the many characters that we read about, you know, many names, many people that, that, that we know who they are, there's very few that are examples to us of the New Testament Christian life from start to finish. And Peter is one of the great prototypes of what Jesus Christ does when he gets a hold of a life. You know, I would say that if you take Peter and Paul and maybe John, those are the only three in the New Testament that we actually have of biblical examples of what God does in a life from start to finish. And so in that, Peter's life and his testimony, his person, become very valuable to us because they're a model, they're a pattern of what God does in a life. And that's why God put so much of Peter before us so that we would see and be encouraged. One of the, the great things about um, Peter and his relationship with God and what's told to us concerning that in the scripture is what happened at the very beginning when Jesus first met Peter. When Jesus first laid eyes on him for the very first time, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as yet, there was, there was no apostles, there was no crew, no disciples following him. It was just Jesus. And very few people even knew who he was at that time, except in the common acquaintance, that they had seen him in synagogue. He grew up in that region. They may have known him and of his family. It was kind of a small country and all. But Jesus walked along and he saw Peter and Andrew, and they were casting their nets close to the shore, and it says that Jesus, it's John chapter 1, verse 42, it says that he beheld Peter. And the word is, is different than just a, a casual glance. 
It, it wasn't just that he, he walked by and he happened to catch something in Peter's face and something spoke to him, but, but, but it rather the, the beheld is that there was a gaze. That, that it's as though Jesus looked at Peter and when he saw him, he looked right through him. He looked right to the core of the man. He saw everything about his life, past, present, and future in a moment of time. He saw like as if an artist were walking along, uh, you know, a creekside and there was just a bed of clay. And the artist who is always looking for the perfect lump of clay to do something with, he sees Peter and in Peter he sees a man that he can transform. He sees a lump of clay that he can mold. And so it says that Jesus beheld him and then the word that Jesus spoke to Peter in that very first encounter is that he said to him, you are Simon, but you shall be Cephas, or Peter. It's just the, the, the other translation uh, of his name. And that's all that Jesus said to him that first time that he saw him. He said, Peter, I look at your life, and what I see in you right now is that you are Simon. It means shifty. It means unstable. But he said, you shall be, what your name will become is Cephas. It's from the uh, the Greek word uh, kipha, which means a stone or the rock, as they would put it in uh, in slang, you know, even in, in those days. And what Jesus said to Peter as he looked at him and saw what he was and then saw what he could do with his life, he said, I'm going to turn you into something that has the instability of sand and I'm going to make you into something that has the stability of a stone. And you say, well, you know, a stone, that doesn't really sound all that stable. You know, it's just a stone. And that's true in the one sense. But the Bible refers to Jesus as a stone. Peter refers to Jesus as a stone. He calls him the chief cornerstone. And he was the stone which the builders rejected. And what Jesus was essentially saying to Peter is that, Peter, I see what you are right now. But with my hand, a hold of your life, I know what I can make you into. And so then we follow the testimony of Peter through the scripture. And we see him in the Gospels and we see a man who's unstable, a man who's impulsive, explosive, prideful, confrontational, competitive, emotional, self-confident, self-reliant, double-minded in many ways. A man who would promise Jesus that he would die with him and yet that very night would deny him three times with an oath and with a curse. We see him then deserting and saying, I quit this whole calling, this whole life. I'm going fishing. I'm going back. And Peter, in every sense, proved true what Jesus said when he said, you are Simon. You are as unstable as water. You're shifting. You're all over the place. You don't know where you are in life. But then we see what happened When Jesus got full hold of his life, when he was restored and when the Holy Spirit came into him and the new work, the deeper work in Peter's brokenness took place, we see what Peter became. He became a man who was humble, submissive, a man who was full of wisdom, a man of the word and of the cross, a great fisher of men, Christ-centered, one of the greatest leaders of the early church and one who in the end would surrender to the death that Jesus ordained him to, and a man who even slept on the night before he was to be handed over to Herod to be killed. And and so Peter became the very stability of what Jesus said would be produced within his life. And, And I think the reason why we like Peter so much and why he's so relatable is because we are just like him. 
When Jesus first sees us, He sees what we are. It's not hidden from Him. He sees the instability. He sees the insecurities. He sees the double-mindedness. He sees the sin. He sees everything that we are. But at the same time He sees that, He sees what He can turn us into. And when He gets a hold of our life, He begins this process and He takes us from what we were to something that's like Himself, something that brings Him glory. And it encourages us because we realize that if our lives are in His hand, then He's not going to leave us the way that we were. That He's going to be faithful to complete this work that He has begun in us. And thus Peter is an excellent model of what God does in a life that's given over to Jesus Christ. And so we have this letter before us, this first of the two recorded letters that Peter wrote. And the singular theme that Peter writes about in this letter, all five chapters on the same subject, is the theme of suffering in the Christian life. The place of suffering, the reason for suffering, making sense of suffering, and the reality that we go through it as Christian people. And so Peter writes about it. The timing of the letter is about 60 A.D. It's about 25 to 30 years after the first Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born. And the scene or the circumstances that surround the church at the writing of this letter are way different than they were in the beginning when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit first came on a single day, 3,000 people were added to the Lord. Within a few days after that, there were 5,000. The Holy Spirit was moving in such a powerful way that the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. The Bible paints a picture of what it was like in those early days of the church. And it says that the people, they did eat their meat with singleness of heart and with gladness from house to house. There was so much love that existed between themselves that no one considered anything that they had to be their own, but it says that they shared all things in common. The Bible says that great grace was upon them all, and it was a time like no other that the church had ever experienced in the early days of that Pentecost. But over time, as is the case with all things, things change. There was incidences, things that happened. Ananias and Sapphira were immediately smitten, and great grace turned into great fear or a great reverence. It was still there, the power of God still moving, but there was something that was shifting and something that was changing. Not long after that, disputes began to arise, petty arguments amongst the believers about who was getting neglected in the daily administration of food and the handling of certain things that were, were, were taking place. And the organization of the church began to choke out some of the life of the Spirit. And it wasn't long after that that the Jews in Jerusalem gathered and garnered enough strength that they were able then to bring in some persecution against the church. And the persecution rose up and became so great that by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that there was a great persecution. And so over those years, the church went from great grace to great fear to now a great persecution. And it tells us there in Acts chapter 8 that because of that persecution and the intensity of it, that many of the disciples were scattered and forced to flee from their home in the comfort of Jerusalem 
And they were pushed then into the northern areas of Samaria and eventually even beyond the borders of Israel and into the regions of Asia. And so the experience of that first generation of Christians had turned somewhat sour and gone south compared to the former glory days that they remembered from the beginning. Many of them were experiencing a new element of their Christian life that they hadn't experienced previously, that is, the sufferings that accompany this life. And many of them, for that reason, because they knew the glory that they had experienced early on, were questioning why God was allowing them to go through the difficulties that they were going through. They didn't understand the circumstances, the pressures, the persecutions, now the poverty, the isolation, the fact that they had gone from something that was in the mainstream to now they feel like they're swimming upstream and against the flow. Life went from easy to more difficult and they were thinking that maybe they had sinned or that maybe God had abandoned them or that maybe they hadn't been included in the grace of God at all. And many of them were floundering in their Christian experience wondering. And so Peter writes this letter 25 to 30 years out now with the intent of encouraging the Christians that were out there in these beyond regions and explaining to them the reality and also the purpose and also the process that suffering produces in the life of a child of God. And so Peter writes this letter on this theme of suffering that is so relatable even unto this day, and the encouragement of the letter reaches us even unto this day. Now the outline of the book is extremely simple. The first four chapters, Peter explains why we're suffering and how we're to live in those conditions. And then in chapter 5, he speaks to the leaders of the church, the elders, and then he brings things to a glorious conclusion there in chapter 5. I won't spoil it, but you can read ahead one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible concerning the difficulties that we face as Christians. And so all about suffering, this book of 1 Peter. We come to the introduction the text of our scripture tonight, and we come to the greeting that Peter gives as he begins his letter in, there in verse 1. He, he, first of all, just simply identifies himself, and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one who was called specifically by Jesus with the mission and the purpose of being a pillar or a foundation stone in the early church. And it made up the whole of his identity. His entire life was swallowed up in the thing that he was called to be. There was nothing else that he would identify with and, 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 and say. There was no other logo, no bumper sticker that would be seen uh, on the back of his robe or, or whatever uh, vehicle that he would be carried around in. The whole of his life was swallowed up in the mission that had been granted him from God that he was to be an apostle. And he identifies himself as such, one who's sent by God with a purpose. And then his audience, he says, to the strangers that are scattered throughout, and then Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, primarily the, the, the region that we would consider to be Asia Minor. But I love the, the title that he gives to those whom he's addressing. He calls them strangers. And when he calls them strangers, he's using that word as a synonym for Christian. Now, you've never thought of yourself that way, have you? We've called ourselves Christians, disciples, believers, 
You know, those that ascribe to the faith, followers of Christ. We have a million names for ourselves. But have you ever considered yourself to be a stranger? Peter does. He uses that as his theme throughout. And his point is this, is very simply, is that this is not our home. And if you've given your life to Christ and you belong to him, then you went from a citizen of this world to a stranger in this world, a sojourner, an alien. All of us are immigrants living abroad. We're living in a place that is not our home. And I believe this would be a comfort to these disciples as they would read this just in Peter's introduction, a reminder to them. Oh yeah, part of the reason why I'm not having such an easy time in this world is because I'm playing on enemy territory. This isn't my home field. I'm called into a life and this is not my home. And that's true for every single one of us who are living in this world. We're strangers here on this planet. But then he says this in verse 2. Not just that they are strangers, but he tells them who they are in Christ. You may be strangers in this world, But in God's eyes, you are, first of all, he says, elect. The word elect means chosen. That you and I have been chosen by God to be citizens of his kingdom and thus strangers in this world. That's an amazing comfort, isn't it? To realize that if you sit here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in him, that you put your faith in him because God chose you. There's been a division that has existed in the church probably as, as, as long as there has been a church on the earth. And that division lies in the question of whether or not God chose me, and that's why I'm saved, or did I choose him, and that's why I'm saved. And that's been a very harsh division. I mean, whole churches and denominations have been set up and, and have, have you know put their stakes in the ground upon the argument of whether or not God chose us or whether or not we have chosen him. Well, Peter says right here that we are elect. That means that we were chosen. Later on, Peter's going to call us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He uses later on even the word where he says, make your calling an election sure. The fact that you were called by God and chosen of him, make it concrete, make it sure. Peter absolutely was a believer that we are chosen by God. But wait a minute. Every time Peter preached a sermon in the book of Acts, he called men and women to make a decision to choose whether or not they wanted to place their faith in Jesus Christ. So, if salvation is purely by the election of God, and he's chosen me to be a Christian, and that's why I'm a Christian, then what sense or reason in there is there in ever calling someone to decide or to make a decision whether or not they want to repent and accept Jesus Christ? Which is it? Did he choose me, or did I choose him? The answer is, yes. The answer is both. You say, well, how can it be both? Because it seems like it must be one or the other. Either he chose me or I chose him. It can't be both. No, it really is both. You say, how does that work? Notice what Peter says next. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, do you know what foreknowledge is? 
Foreknowledge is knowing something before it takes place. So what does that mean? It means that God's choosing of you and I is based upon his foreknowing that we would choose him. He chose us based upon the fact that he knew that we would choose him. Jesus would put it in these terms in John chapter 6, verse 35. It says that Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Now, if we come to him, that's certainly a decision or a choice that we make, isn't it? We choose to come to Jesus. When we come to the altar, when we accept Christ, if we go forward or we pray in our hearts and we receive the gift of God's salvation, that's a choice that we make. We've chosen him. And Jesus says, if you, if you come to me, if you choose me, you'll never hunger. But then he says in verse 36, just the same breath, he says, but I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father has given me, shall come to me, and him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So now Jesus adds another dimension to that, doesn't he? He says, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Now that's the marrying of God's choosing us and our choosing him. We come to him because we've been chosen by him, but notice what he says. It says that him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you know what that means? It means that you can't come by accident. You can't say, well, I went forward. I listened to the plea of the evangelist. I want Jesus in my life, but maybe I'm not chosen. No, no, no. If you you chose him, that's evidence that he chose you. And if you come to him, he will not cast you out. Down in verse 44 of the same chapter, Jesus said this. He said, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. I know that for me, I made a decision to give my life to Christ. I know right where I was when I did it. I know the process. It's my life. It's my story. And what I know of that is I know that there was a drawing that took place in my heart over a period of five years that led me to that point where I knew that I had to give my life to Christ or else the only other option was death. (laughs) that's pretty much all that there was. When I listen to my wife share her story with people, she talks about this unquenchable hunger that she had in her soul that could not be satisfied by anything that this world could give, and she had enough of everything that she could ever ask for in this world. But there was something missing, and she knew that it could only come from something that was bigger from herself. It was the Father drawing her to himself. Jesus spoke of the salvation of those that would come in terms like this. He said that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that convict that Jesus talks about is a conviction that comes upon the heart of a lost person when they realize that they're lost. They realize that they were created with a purpose. They realize that what they're being fed about the world and its existence and how it came to be is all a lie, that there's something more. There's a conviction somewhere deep inside the heart that there's more to life than just to live for my pleasures and for myself. There's a conviction that comes that tells me that there's eternity. It's stamped upon my heart for some reason and I don't know why. That's the drawing of the Father. And when that conviction is birthed within the heart of a person, 
And they cry out with their life and they say, yes, God, I receive your salvation through your son, Jesus. God meets that person at the point of that confession and God electing meets our choosing and salvation takes place within a soul. It's a multidimensional salvation. And Peter says, to the elect, you've been chosen of God according to his foreknowledge. He knew what would take place in your life. He knew that you would surrender and choose him. And thus, he chose you. Now, the amazing thing about God's foreknowledge is that when he foreknows our lives, he doesn't just foreknow that we will choose him. He foreknows what we were and what we are at the moment we come. He knows the filth that exists within our life. He foreknows everything that we're going to do every day of our salvation, even the things that we're so ashamed of, we think that he'll cast us out forever. He sees every day of our life before it's ever lived, but he sees ultimately what he's going to perfect in us over the course of his work in our lives while we're here on planet Earth. His foreknowledge is awesome. And in the context of our sufferings, it's a great comfort. Because it means that he sees every pit and every valley and every difficulty that we're going to go through during our three score and ten here on this planet. And that he already sees the solution and the outcome of every one of those things. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You say, okay, how do I know? How do I know that I'm really in the faith? Or how can you tell if someone else really is in the faith or if they've just made a vain profession? They've come with their lips, but they haven't really come in their heart. Or if I've come with my lips, but I haven't really come in my heart. Is there a way that we can know? Yeah, there is. Notice what Peter says. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is a big Bible word that simply means that we've been set apart or made holy. We're separated by the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, which is part of the triune God, moves into our life. God goes from being an external being separate from us to being an internal presence that lives in the deepest part of our heart. God knew that if we were going to live this Christian life, and if we were going to have a relationship with Him in the way that He wants to have a relationship with us, that we would need to have a part of Him living inside of us. And so God ordained it that when we come to Christ, He doesn't just come meet with us, but that He comes in us, and we're sanctified. The light of God, the name of Christ is written upon us and we are separated from citizenship in this world. We're separated from the kingdom of darkness. We're separated from the influence of darkness. We're separated from Satan's access to wreak havoc in our lives as he did in times past. We are put in God's pile of belongings by the basis of the fact that he is living inside of us. What a glorious experience to realize that God would entrust to us himself in the inner man. That's the evidence that a person is truly saved, that God lives in them. And when the Spirit moves inside a life, a whole new dimension of life begins. What is that? Notice what he says next. He says, through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does the Spirit do when the Spirit comes into the life? The Spirit drives me with a deep desire to be obedient to the will of my Lord. He drives me to want to do what He wants for my life. He drives me to hate sin and to get away from the things in the past that separated me from Him and created the emptiness that drove me to Him. And it creates a drive in me to want to obey, to want to know what He wants for my life, to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That's the evidence that a person is saved. If you can sit in church... And if you can read a Bible or endure a Bible study or listen to Christian radio or speak Christian language or hang out with Christian people, but there's no inward drive that's continually convicting over the sins of the life or that's driving you unto obedience to Him, then you have good reason to question whether or not you've truly come to Jesus Christ as your Savior. You may have spoken the words hoping that God will hear your mouth and give you adherence based on that. But there has not been a work of conversion within you because it hasn't been met with conviction and salvation. The evidence of the Spirit in a life is that I'm a servant of obedience. That's what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says that we were slaves to sin, now we come slaves to righteousness. Peter says that we're saved, we're sanctified by His Spirit in us unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. I love the sprinkling of the blood. You know why? Mercy. God knows that we're going to need abundant mercy because even though we've been saved, even though we're driven with a desire for obedience, we still fall short every day, don't we? Is there anyone here that can raise their hand and say, I have arrived I've become everything that God is. I am the most Christ-like thing God has ever seen on the face of the planet since His Son walked here Himself. No, we're all, every one of us, ashamed. We wake up each morning knowing that if we don't have God in our lives, if we're left to ourselves, that we're going to make a train wreck of things because that's what we are apart from Him. And the sprinkling of the blood allows God to look at us with the righteous perfection of Christ while He works out in us the nature of His Son, in place of what we're coming out of. And thus, Peter concludes his greeting by saying, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Because we receive the grace of God through the sprinkling of the blood, we feel the peace of God in His presence and His work within our lives. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, meaning that we have now been justified in our relationship with God, reconciliation, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have peace, it's because there's an absence of grace. And if you do have peace, it's because you've experienced and appropriated grace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now Peter gives to us our stance. This is our position. And in context of suffering, we haven't actually broached the subject yet. We'll broach the the subject of suffering when we get to verse 6. But in the context of suffering, which is the context of the letter, he tells us what our position is. In spite of what you're going through here tonight, 
in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the valleys, in spite of the trials that you're facing, these things are absolutely true of you. This is your position from heaven's perspective tonight. Notice what he says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, it's an exclamation of praise or of thanksgiving to God for what he's about to say next. Which, according to his abundant mercy, that's the motive behind what God's done for us, mercy, he has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in other words, he's saying, thanks be to God that motivated by his abundant mercy, every one of us that have put our faith in Christ are born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's recorded in John chapter 3, he was a Pharisee that came to Jesus in secret. And he said, what gives with you? We know that you're a teacher that's come from God. No one can do what you do except God is with him. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, one of only 6,000 Pharisees in Israel, a teacher, a leader. And he said, Truly, assuredly, I say unto you, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus furrowed his brow and he looked back at Jesus and he said, Are you saying I need to get back into the womb and be born a second time? And Jesus smiled and he said, Hey, you're supposed to be Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. He said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You were born once after the flesh. That's done. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What was he talking about? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did God say would happen on the day they ate of that fruit? He said, you will surely die, right? Did they die that day, physically? No, they lived another 900 or something years after that happened. But they absolutely very much did die. Not physically, but spiritually. Their communion, their connection to the life of God, which was to be the source of all life, was broken. And they became independent beings, spiritually dead, aliens, separated enemies of God on the day that they fell. And because they were the only people that lived on the planet during that time, everyone who's been born into this world since them has been born into this world spiritually dead, separated from God. All of us are born into this world enemies of God. And something has to happen in order to reconcile the breach that was created because of sin and to bring us back into a relationship with God. And unless that gap is breached somehow or brought back together, we cannot be reconciled to God. Well, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross... God took all of the sins of humanity and he placed them upon his son, Jesus, on the cross. And he declared them to be forgiven, thereby opening the door for man to come back into fellowship with God and the spirit of man to be revived and regenerated. That's what it means to be born again. And because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, you and I have the privilege of coming to God by faith putting our trust in Him and coming into a relationship with Him wherein now we are spiritually born. 
There's spiritual life inside of us now. We can see things that are invisible to the naked eye. We can hear and perceive things that are unhearable, inaudible in the physical realm. There's a spiritual life that is birthed within us because we come into this relationship with God. We've been begotten again. We're born again. And that's true of everyone here that's put your faith in Christ regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in. Not only have we been born again, but we've been born again unto what Peter calls here a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know why I love this verse so much? It's because there is only one living hope in all of the universe. There are countless dying hopes. Every hope that this world can produce is a dying hope. You know what a dying hope is? A dying hope is something that fades and dulls over time. It's dying. And everything that you and I can put our hope in, in this world, can only give us a dying hope. Do you know what the greatest contrasting difference between an adult and a child is? You ever seen the fire, the life, the zeal that's in the eyes of a child? And then you look at an adult and you see that all of that is all but gone. It's just a shell where all that once used to live. Do you know what the, you know why? Because They've had the hope knocked out of them. That's what's happened. They've realized what this world is and what the best this world can give is and it has just knocked it out of them, all that zeal and all that fire because this world can produce nothing but a dying hope. Even if you attain the things that you hoped for, you realize, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I hoped it would be better than this. It's just fading. It's dying, all of it. But for the Christian... For the person whose hope is not in anything that's in this world, but their hope is in that which is promised and that which is to come, that's a living hope. And it's the only hope that exists on the planet that the longer you hold it and the closer you get to it, the brighter and more brilliant it becomes. It's a living hope. It's illustrated by the very first miracle that Jesus did at Cana of Galilee. Remember when he turned the water into wine? And the governor of the feast came out and tasted it, and he said, you morons. That's not King James, you know. He said, nobody puts out the good wine at the end of the feast. You put out the good wine first, and once everybody's drunk and can't taste anymore, then you put out the the, the bad wine, you know. But you've saved the best for now. That That was prophetic of Jesus' work, what he does. With him, it only gets better. It only gets sweeter. The hope only grows more brilliant. Heaven becomes more of a reality. It's a living hope. It's the only one that exists. And he's brought us into that hope through the resurrection of his son Jesus from the dead. Not only that, not only are we born again, not only do we have a living hope, but he says in verse 4, to an inheritance. That there's something that's awaiting us. And he describes that inheritance with four words. He said it's first of all, incorruptible. It speaks of the value of what awaits us in heaven. The value cannot be diminished. It cannot be tarnished in any way. He calls it also undefiled. It speaks of the quality of that inheritance, that it's without imperfection, that we're not going to come into our heavenly inheritance and in any way say, you know what, this is almost everything that I hoped it would be. But if it could just be just this little bit different, then I would be satisfied with it. No, 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 no. It's an 
undefiled, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, undefiled, meaning it's, it's, it's perfect in every single way. Its quality is without compromise. The third thing he says concerning our inheritance is he says that it fadeth not away. Do you know that's a single word in the Greek language, fadeth not away? It's where we get the English word perennial. Do you know what a perennial is? It's a flower that you plant once and it keeps on yielding. I know all about those. I plowed a whole bunch of daffodils under my backyard when, when we kind of tore out a, a certain section of it. And those perennials keep coming up every year. I know right where the daffodil bulbs <laughs> ended up in, in, in the reprocessing because they don't need to be replanted again. It's already been set there once and for all. And that just fills me with so much hope when I think about what God has reserved in heaven for me. You know why? Because so often... In fact, probably on a weekly or a daily basis, I feel like I've blown it for eternity. I do something, I lose my reward, I corrupt my inheritance, in some way I botch you know, all that. And you know what God says about it? He says, no, it's a perennial. It comes around again. I've, I've written this into the destiny and the fabric of who you are in heaven. It fades not away. It's not going to fade. It'll come back. And then he says, it's reserved in heaven for us. That is that it's guarded by God, this inheritance that we have. And where is it? He says, it's reserved in heaven for you. Who, he goes on in verse 5, are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is your inheritance kept and guarded by God, but you are being preserved by God as well. God has his hand on your life. And regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in at any given moment, God is safely guarding the keeping of your soul that's been entrusted into his hand. And when the rapture comes, that's what he talks about at the end of the verse when he says that's ready to be revealed in the last time. When that moment comes that we see him and we see our lives as he sees our lives, it's then that we're going to realize just how well we've been kept, how carefully we've been preserved by God, and how good he's been to us in our time on earth. Now he broaches the subject. In light of all that, this is where we stand. That's from heaven's perspective. God sees us, and he sees that we're born again. He sees that we're chosen, we're known, we're saved, we're sealed, we're empowered, we're washed. Our inheritance is there, it's set. That's what God sees, but that's not always what we feel like, is it? Verse 6, he says, Wherein, in all of that, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, we know that these things are true. There's a joy that rests deep inside of us because we realize the reality of what we've been given and where we are, where we stand in heaven. But at the same time, there can be a heaviness that's weighing down upon our hearts as well because of the trials and the afflictions and the sufferings that we're going through while we're walking through this earth. I want you to see the two things that he says concerning our sufferings here in this verse. First of all, those sufferings are seasonal. He says, though you be in heaviness for a season, none of the sufferings that we go through in this life accompany us all the way through to our journey's end. They're seasonal sufferings. And second of all, he says concerning the sufferings, is that there's a reason for them. He says, though you be in heaviness for a season, 
if need be. Do you see those words there? It means that if God has allowed suffering to come into our lives in any context, for any length of time, and to any degree of intensity, there's a reason why God has allowed those sufferings to come into our life. There's a purpose behind those sufferings in the mind of God that are for our good and that will turn out to our blessing and our benefit in the end. Sometimes the sufferings of God come into our life because there's something that needs to be removed from our life and God knows it's only going to be through the pain of a trial that that something will be surrendered at the foot of the cross. And so he allows that trial to come. Because he knows that if he lets that sin reside and stay, then the suffering that that's going to bring in our future is far worse than the suffering of the trial that will bring that sin out of our lives. Sometimes there's an impurity in the clay that God is seeking to work with. And so he brings a trial into our life, a fiery trial, as Peter describes it uh, in verse 7. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says that the trial of your faith being more precious than of gold that perishes, might be tried with fire, that it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God allows a trial to come into our life because he sees something that he wants to purify out of our lives. He wants to turn up the heat on us, just like a finer would turn up the heat on gold or silver, precious metal in order to remove impurities that are tarnishing the value of the substance. And God sees things in us that are weaknesses. He sees things that are tarnishing, invaluables. And he allows trials to come into our life in order that those things can be purged out and we can be a more pure lump, more conductive of his love in ourselves and to a lost and needy world. And so God allows trials to come into our lives And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, Whom, having not seen Jesus, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That even now, as you sit, whatever circumstance you're in, God has already saved you. And you've already received the gift of salvation in its fullness. Now notice in verse 10 what he says concerning this salvation that that we have. I want you to just sit and realize for a moment what you have. Have you ever, of course you have, if you drive here, you ever get an insurance binder policy thing in the mail when it comes due? You know, you get the thing from Geico or from, you know, State Farm or whatever, and and it tells you what all your coverage is. You ever read those things? Me neither. Nobody reads those things. I just want to see what I owe <laughs> and then just just do it. Take it. Cut it off. You know, just hurry up. You know, I don't want it to hurt. What he does for a minute is he just says, I want you to look at what you have. I just want you to read it. Read the binder. Read the glory of this salvation that you and I possess here tonight. Think about it. Meditate on it. Listen to what he says. No, no, this is way more interesting than insurance papers. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. 
What Peter is saying here is, listen, when Isaiah the prophet wrote out the words that are in chapters 52 and 53 concerning the suffering Christ, when when Isaiah wrote the words, by his stripes we are healed, the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That when God took Abraham and, and, and his son up the hill and the father Abraham bound his son Isaac to the altar and raised the knife and then God intervened and stopped him and he saw a lamb with, or a ram with his horns caught in a thorny bush with a crown of thorns and he said, sacrifice that instead. And Abraham declared by the Spirit of God in the mountain of the Lord, this shall be seen. When David wrote the Psalms and he described the crucifixion and the sufferings of Christ, what Peter is saying is that when those men wrote those things that they inquired diligently, they said, what does this mean? When is this going to happen? God, when are you going to fulfill these things? What will it be to those that are on earth in those days that experience those things? They saw it through the prophetic lens, but they never experienced it. They knew of it in some degree by the spirit that dwelt in them, but they experienced none of it. And what Peter is saying to you and I, verse 12, he says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things even the angels desire to look into. The glory of what we have in this New Testament relationship with Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, the relationship we have where we can hear His voice, where He declares to us that we're His sons and daughters, that we can come into an isolated place, we can open up our Bible, we can close our eyes in silence, and the presence of God comes into the room. And His Spirit begins to speak into our lives. And we read the text of Scripture and it becomes so personal as though God wrote it just to us. And God begins to talk to us and reveal things to us concerning our own lives and the direction that we're to go. And we get to see His supernatural preparation of us, of the things that are going to happen to us throughout a given day. And then he does something inside and, and, and he clicks something in our emotion and we realize that we're in his presence and, and we begin to worship and it's just us and God. They never had that. And yet God's given it to us, the glory. And the angels even don't even have that kind of relationship with God. They learn about God by seeing his interaction with us. They look at us and they go, what in the world are they doing? What are they putting in their bodies? What are they filling their minds with? What are they doing to one another? Don't they know what they are? They're created in the image of God. They're filth. They've defiled themselves. They're they're disgusting. And at the same time, they look at Him. And they see glory and perfection. They see majesty. They see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They see one who's infinite in His power and in His presence and in His purpose. They see the Ancient of Days. They see glory personified. They can't even look at Him. They have to cover their faces. And they see every day this contrast between this fallen, wicked creation and this holy God who's dwelling in His temple. 
And when they think that he should just annihilate it because it's so filthy, instead of annihilating it, he disrobes himself of all that majesty. And he's born into this world as one of us. And he robes himself in human flesh. And he lives a life that we couldn't live. And then he dies a death that none of us could endure. He pays a price that none of us could pay. And he doesn't rise and ascend and say, see you filthy, wretched creation, you could have done it if you tried a little harder. He says, mercy. He says, all day long, I've outstretched my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He says, I've made you in my image. He says, I've redeemed you. He says that though you fall, underneath are the everlasting arms. He says, I've kept you as the apple of my eye. He says that the door is always open. He says, I have called you sons and daughters. And he says, whosoever thirsts, let them come. Let them come. And the angels look at that and something short circuits. They say, what? We've, we're created just the same, but we never knew. We never knew that that was who our Father was. We never knew that that was the Creator. We never knew that He was motivated by love and by mercy. But there's never been a greater extension of mercy. There's never been a greater gap that's been bridged by any being. And yet God did it on behalf of his creation that rebelled against him, that spit in his face, that plucked out his beard. And yet he gave forgiveness. That's who he is. That's the salvation that you and I possess. Those are the hands that are holding us right now in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the trials, in spite of the pain, in spite of the questions, in spite of the stress, those are the hands that are holding us right now. Those are the hands that are shaping our destiny. He's got us. The musicians can come. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for the cross. We thank you tonight that while we were yet your enemies, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've chosen to place yourself inside of us in this relationship and give us the level of intimacy and access that we have. We thank you tonight that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us at the appearance of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that underneath all of what we feel, The fact is that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for us, that we are kept by the power of God. Oh Lord, I pray tonight 
that your spirit would impress these truths upon our hearts. That you would make them real in our experience. That we would fall in awe of you. That our hearts would be moved to absolute surrender and total unreserved trust. And that you would be the Lord of all in our lives. Let us hold nothing back. We love you, Lord. We need you, Lord. And we thank you.